everyone. Greetings to some of you that I recognize and haven't seen for a while, and to some of you that I'm meeting for the first time. How successful do you believe is Dr. Billy Graham? Would you say that he is a successful evangelist? I certainly would by any criteria that is used today, because I imagine in his career he has brought about what to him is the conversion of literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. If he had kept careful records from the days in the 1950s when he was out in Los Angeles and William Hearst at the head of the William Randolph Hearst newspaper chain gave an order to his editor, Puff Graham, and the crowds became larger and larger as they came out to hear this young Southern Baptist with a fiery manner of speech in the inimitable Southern California, I should say Southern uh, accent from South Carolina, Southern Carolinian accent. The crowds were so overwhelming, they were virtually in standing room only as a result of the large Los Angeles newspaper when uh, William Randolph Hearst had said, Huff Graham. Billy Graham has been to Russia, to Eastern Europe, to nations all over the world, nations where they worship Buddha, nations where they are basically in the grips of godless atheism. He has been in some of the inner cities and some of the biggest outdoor and indoor auditoriums available in the United States and spoken to crowds upwards of 80,000 human beings. He's had choirs and choral groups behind him numbering into the many hundreds who have sung Just As I Am, while literally thousands of people have been seen on the television programs when he has done national and even worldwide television, pouring down to stand sobbing before the counselors and to, as they say, give their hearts to the Lord and become convicted or converted or whatever term they would use. So surely by any criteria, you would have to say if you're looking at the measure of success of evangelists, Dr. Billy Graham has got to be one of the most successful of all time. How successful was a man who preached with all the passion, all the conviction at his disposal, who had actually heard the voice of an archangel or some messenger of God, and devoted 120 long years to preaching the word and the law of God and never gained a single convert. Was that man a success? Well, his name is Noah, and he is seen in the word of God as being one of those three men mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, though Noah, Job, and Daniel were in it I would not spare the land for their sake, but every man is going to answer for the deeds done in his own body, and the man's individual deeds will come back upon his own head. And God picked out several of the most righteous men of whom the Bible speaks as examples of righteousness. Noah is called by the New Testament writers a preacher of righteousness. I want to take a look at the life and times of Noah because Jesus said in Matthew 24, and I'll turn to that and read it briefly, that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. That's Matthew 24, beginning in verse 37. As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, in one sense of the word, that is not saying 
anything in this passage of great evil intent, though we find a great deal of that in the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of the book of Genesis, because eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage is not necessarily contrary to God's law, except where people marry wrongly, or they eat or drink too much, or eat or drink wrong or forbidden things according to God's law. So that's not really what the intent of this is. The intent of it is that they were living life normally. They were going about their daily business. They were paying no attention. They were taking no heed. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Yet it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. There's some interesting information given to us in the book of Jude. I'll turn to that quickly and look at just one verse or so, right back before the book of Revelation. We read of Enoch, who is allegedly the seventh from Adam. Here it is talking about perverted, false prophets and ministers. It is also talking about demon influence and perhaps actual demon possession, saying in verse 11, Woe unto them, that is, these false teachers who had crept in unawares, verse 4. And Jude is talking, in a sense, about the entire history of the Church of God, which originally became apostate in the close of the first century. He said, Woe unto them, they have gone in the way of Cain. And what was the way of Cain but the way of jealousy, of hatred, of rejection of God's laws, and of despite or actual spite and hatred toward his own brother who knew the truth about God's sacrifices, and Cain who actually hated his own brother and killed him, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. They're up for hire, like a lot of the preachers today that are willing to preach whatever somebody tells them for a salary, and perished in the gainsaying of Cory, saying there is no such thing as a divine calling from God. We are as good as you are. All of us are priests. We're just as qualified to carry the incense labor and to offer up prayers and preachments to God as you are. And God said, if I make a new thing and open the earth and all that pertains to Korah and his family fall down inside, then is Moses my servant and I am the eternal God, and if not, and so on. So all of Korah tumbled into a gigantic crevasse that God opened up in an earthquake and were destroyed because they thought to appropriate to themselves a calling from God. They thought to volunteer for the priesthood. They thought, they, they thought rather to appoint or to anoint themselves as priests or ministers or leaders. When I was yet unconverted and I was writing to a young girl named Shirley Hammer over in Gladewater, Texas, she still has the letters in which I was telling her that they had given us a class project in Bible class in Ambassador College where they said the best of the writers were probably going to be published in the Plain Truth magazine. I remember telling her in advance that I thought maybe my father had some ploy in mind that he was going to publish my article. But I said there is no way, no matter what he does, he's ever going to get me in that church. And there's no way, no matter what he does, he's ever going to get me in the ministry. When I was a young man, fresh out of the Navy, the idea of being in the ministry would have made me so angry, I probably would have engaged in a little light fisticuffs with someone who would have suggested it. 
Because, you see, whether you realize it or not, and I can tell you all the story, and that's not a part of my sermon today, I did not volunteer. I like to say I was drafted, because that is really the way it happened in my life. And I've always been very comfortable with the fact that I had to come to the truth of God over the obstacle of a man named Herbert W. Armstrong and to wrestle with the idea who gives him the right to be right and just who does he think he is. The idea that he could be right because he was my father was absolutely ridiculous to me and so far-fetched it simply could not be true. I ran the other way. I rejected the entire concept. I didn't want to be a part of God's church and I certainly had no desire to be in the ministry. Yet I see that there are people in two fields of which I know, we were discussing briefly at lunch, and two fields only, where allegedly the layman is not capable of judging, that can appropriate to themselves great preposterous credentials and can be admired and even virtually worshipped and followed by people in this world where they are bereft of education, perhaps have a low mentality, no specific training or expertise, and certainly no calling, but can arrogate to themselves gigantic accolades and credentials. And those two fields, and the only two I know of, are not education, they're certainly not law enforcement, not politics, not medicine, not science, not astronomy, archaeology, or historical or dynamic geology, or biology, or nuclear physics, because in all of these things you have to have an education, you have to have credentials, you have to have knowledge, and you have to be able to perform in a laboratory, or a classroom, or on a police force, or in an elected office, in a capacity as a public official. You have to prove, you have to merit what you have, not in art and not in religion. You can be the biggest fool the world has ever seen and concoct the dumbest series of ideas that anyone's ever heard of, and people will follow. We saw recently on national television a man who had allegedly stomped around in his garage floor after spilling a whole lot of cans of paint of various colors on crushed glass, probably lacerated his feet to smear in with the paint and then walked all over a piece of canvas that he had on the floor of his garage, put a frame around it, put it up on a wall, and after he had died, the thing sold for like a million dollars. Recently on the, oh, I keep forgetting this fellow's name, but he's a white-haired Irishman that comes on in the morning of the housewives time, and once in a great while I'll see a little part of him before I turn him off because I really don't like him. Donahue, I was on his program once many years ago, but he had some of the examples of art of this very same man who became very, very famous and virtually is as famous as, hold your breath, you ready for this, Salvador Dali. You ever see his art, quote unquote, of the watch shaped like half of a noodle that's kind of drooling, dripping over the side of a desk to the, supposed to be art? Well, this man had, not Dali, but the man that was being shown on television had painted, painting about this big, and it just looked to me like somebody had taken a black paintbrush and stuck it in a can and gone like that a few times, and that was it. And actually, that's exactly what he did. Exactly what he did. 
He was saying, now be careful with this, and he took it out among the audience and let some of them actually hold it because he said, would you believe that this sells $750,000? Of course, the audience just caught their breath. <gasps> you hear an audible gasp. They couldn't believe it. Well, don't you think this is art? Some of them put their hands over their eyes. Some of them put their hands over their mouth. They were just almost weeping with, with laughter because it was so ridiculous that nobody in his right mind would think that is art. On the front hallway of the huge museum on the USC campus in Southern California, Museum of Natural History, they had a section on art. It may still be there. Years ago, we took a student field trip down there, and you walk in, and here, almost on an entire wall, probably 20 feet by 15 feet, it's a huge painting. A painting. It was solid white. There was one stripe down the right side of it, perfectly perpendicular, black stripe, right to the bottom. That's all it was. A wall, white, one black stripe. The title, Adam. Painting. In Seattle, Washington, some time ago, many years ago, as a matter of fact, there was a caretaker in a museum. They were having an art contest. It was being judged for great, uh, I guess, not only accolades and medals and rewards and cups and all of that, but maybe a considerable amount of money. And he, during the many years he had been working in this building, down in the area where he'd had to repair the furnace and so on, had a piece of thin sheet metal from which he had cut with a blowtorch various pieces of metal to make things and to try to repair things and this and that. Well, he looked at that piece of junk he had over there, and it just was the weirdest shape because, of course, here was this cutting torch that had cut circles and squares and oblong bits and pieces of metal out of this piece of sheet metal. It was just leaning over there, an old piece of rusted sheet metal. It just was a bizarre shape. Well, as a joke, he went out there one night, and he mounted that thing on a piece of wood and stuck it on a pedestal, kind of up on one side, and put it out there in a the contest. And you're way ahead of me. You know what I'm about to tell you. It won. It was art. Now, I think you're all aware of what I'm saying, aren't you? In other words, you can be the dumbest human being that has ever walked the earth, and people can ooh and awe ah at things that you do in a frenzy, and in some cases, I really do suspect, demon possession. It showed this one man in an old clip of a film that had a big bucket, and a canvas down in his garage, and a brush about that wide, jammed the brush down into the paint, and just went around just swapping it on like that, just throwing it like your kid would do if he's trying to wreck your garage. And they put a frame around it and sold it for about a million dollars. The only two fields I know of, I've scratched my head and searched in some kind of a field where someone can be virtually without any education, without any credentials, and without any calling from any source whatsoever is art and religion. Every now and then somebody wants to start his own church. I want to show you one of the most frustrating stories you can imagine if you think and if you equate success with what most people use as the yardstick of measurement for success, and that is the ministry of a man named Noah. Back in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, we read of how God had looked and all of the earth had become corrupt before him, and he proposed to destroy all of mankind with a great flood. 
God saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, it's said that just prior to the days of the second coming of Christ, it would be like it was in the days of Noah. Let me interject something from a personal standpoint to show you where I'm coming from. In 1955, I recently saw one of the first telecasts I've ever made in my life, and I was embarrassed. My son was kind of fascinated because, of course, I was much younger at the time I made that program than he is now. I was 25 years of age, and I was ranting and railing against one of the most outrageous, heinous crimes I'd heard of at that time when some young teenagers had squirted lighter fluid in the lap of an elderly gentleman on a bus in Sydney, Australia and gleefully laughing before they leapt off the bus had struck a match and thrown it on him. And I was preaching, top of my lungs, age 25, on my very first telecast in 1955 in the summer of that year, against juvenile delinquency and child crime. How well I remember in the ensuing years, 57, 8, 9, 60, 1, 2, 3, and on, until it has now mounted up to 35 years preaching hundreds and hundreds of sermons against crime, against air and water and solid pollution, which is basically laid to the door of vanity and greed and lust of the human family, against divorce, against child molestation and abuse, against crime of all kinds, corporate crime, white and blue-collar crime, uh, any kind you want to talk about, drugs and the like. I remember the shocking statistics I gave back in the 1950s, I was saying one out of three homes in the United States are being ripped asunder by divorce. What are the statistics today? Half. All right, here I have been, and there was a time back here about 15 years ago when my name was known by perhaps a third of the population of the United States. I can show you articles talking about me and segments in books that were written about churches and the preachers and the evangelists and on and on, where I'm in there, and articles written in major national magazines talking about how Garner Ted Armstrong is one of the best known. You would assume that all of those thousands of broadcasts would have represented some sort of a force, some sort of an influence that there would be some kind of a definite, measurable result. Well, look at the measurable result. Or is that the result to which we should look? Is that the criterion we should use? Are those tens of thousands of, quote, converts, end quote, by Dr. Billy Graham, a measure of his success? Let's look again at the times in which Noah lived. God saw the wickedness was so great, we can read up before that, and I won't do it, about how he said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. Well, there's one verse I want to get, and that's verse 3, for that he is also a flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. Not that he was given a 120-year lifespan, which is disproved by the succeeding chapters, but that there were to be 120 years prior to the flood. There were giants in the earth. Gigantism had occurred, verse 4. And also after that, not the cause of the gigantism, as many people misread, but after the time that there were giants, the sons of God, and they were called that because they were sons of Adam, and people mistakenly think this means angels, but Jesus Christ debunked that by saying they neither marry nor are given in marriage, and angels are not human beings producing male seed, 
Jesus said they nev never marry nor are given in marriage. They are neuter in that sense, though spoken of as masculine gender, and they don't cohabit with women. So when men came in unto the daughters of men and bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And I've done a lot of college projects and studied on it, and I won't uh, get, get off into that a little bit uh, because it is sort of a digression about the great stature of men in the pre-flood era that are known today as Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, and some of the others that they have discovered in southern France and northern Africa, down in the Old Divide Gorge, and even on this continent. But basically, there were men seven, eight, and ten feet tall of gigantic stature, of huge bone structure, that had been unearthed, and some of the old campfires unearthed in the caves that are actually pre-flood strata have shown definite evidence that cranial areas were battered into, were cleaved, were, were chiseled, were were smashed open to get at brains, and the bones are blackened by fire. In other words, there is plenty of evidence, not only internal biblical evidence, but other evidence to show that every form of perversion that could be imagined was being practiced prior to the flood. Your God, the God who says that he is love, and the God who loves all of mankind, and who sent Jesus Christ to die for the sins of all mankind, did not drown possibly somewhere close to one billion human beings or more, elderly, infirm woman and little crying child. He did not drown them all like rats, except that the society was so incredibly perverse, so utterly corrupted, that it says here in the Bible, it made God sick mentally. It repented him, he said, that he had even made mankind. So sickened was he by the perversion around him, and that Noah only, not Mrs. Noah, we don't know her name, not Shem or Ham or Japheth, we don't know their wives' names, Noah only was a righteous man. One human being in the entirety of all those societies was still walking with God, was adhering to God's laws, knew God's truth, knew about clean and unclean, knew about the meaning, the symbolic shadow of sacrifice of clean animals, knew the principles of God. And we'll see here that there was actually a succession of seven patriarchs prior to the flood. Seven is completion, perfection, completion. God had a patriarch throughout certain generations seven times from the time of the third son, possibly seventh or fourteenth sons, we shall shortly prove, named Seth of Adam, to the time of Noah, who was responsible for maintaining the work of God that was on the earth at that time. Enoch also was one of them and is spoken of, as we saw in the book of Jude, as the seventh from Adam. But I don't think I did finish reading that to you, did I, when I was back in the book of Jude? And I want to get that right quickly so you don't miss it. It said in verse 14 of the book of Jude, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, I'm not saying here that the book of Enoch, which is known, is 100% inspired of God. But I am certainly saying that Jude, 
who was probably the half-brother of Jesus Christ, selected a passage from Enoch and gives it the weight of Scripture, and that you are reading here of a pre-flood patriarch who is preaching the gospel. A pre-flood patriarch is saying, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. That's got to be one of the earliest known, or recorded at least, examples of the preaching of the gospel, and it happened before the time of Noah. Enoch preached the gospel. He is called the seventh from Adam. Keep that in mind, the seventh from Adam. So God sees all of this perversion, verse 5 of Genesis 6, and it repented the eternal, verse 6, that he had made man on the earth and grieved him at his heart. People ask, can God be tired? Can God be sorrowful? Can God be grieved or upset or weary? Does God have emotions? God was so sickened and grieved at his heart, the example of humankind, the work of his own hands, that it repented him that he had even made man. Does the Bible speak lightly? Is that just a little extra something thrown in there for us to read? Or did God really seriously consider doing it some other way, not in some physical hulk like you and I, standing here with ten fingers and ten toes and two eyes and nostrils and a pair of funny-looking ears with which we hear projecting out of the sides of our head, but by some other method, manner, or means. God was sickened to his heart that he'd even made man. It makes you wonder what we owe Noah. The Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, every one of them, with a few notable exceptions that we shall see. For it repents me that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Eternal. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. That means what it says, righteous, walking according to God's law, fair, equitable, honest, and perfect in his generations. And the force of that verse does not mean perfect in his engenderments. That isn't the force of it, although he was, because he married a woman of like color and of like background, I have no doubt. But it does mean in his times or during his days, and has to do with during the time in which Noah lived, he was a perfect man and walking uprightly. And Noah walked with God. Noah begat three sons. Shem was the firstborn. Ham and Japheth. And if you wonder about the firstborn and the statement that had to do with the horrible act uh, following Noah's drunkenness some years after the landing on Mount Ararat, and when it talks about what his firstborn had done, you'll begin to understand that the Bible is a little bit ambiguous in those pronouns and that Canaan is the one who was cursed, who was the son of Ham and not Ham himself, who was not the firstborn. Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Now, if you were to come by anybody's house at night and they're flipping around on television, it's amazing when you flip around on television and you're hearing rat-a-tat-tat-tat, boom-boom-bang, a car is turning over and exploding in a fiery explosion, helicopters shooting missiles and rockets into some desert encampment, people jumping around in camouflage fatigue shooting submachine guns at each other, and all we're talking about it's just modern-day cops and robbers. We're talking about what Roy Rogers once was. We're talking about Hyo Silver. 
But today it's called Batman. They're in some Batmobile and they're running around machine gunning and exploding people by the thousands. I've never kept track, but some of those movies, if you would keep track, you could probably find about 470 murders, 16 stranglings, five rapes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you could keep track and it would just blow your mind at the incredible amount of violence that people are feeding upon. Here are little children sitting there. Looking at all of this, you know that from the 1960s, the statistic was available that the average youngster in the United States of America sits in front of the television set more hours by the time he toddles off to the first grade than he will spend in formal education in his lifetime. And we talk about the formative years. Well, I don't need to tell you about violence. I mean, I'm standing here as a person who got a death threat this last week. Somebody picked up the phone and said, there's a bomb, Garner Ted's going to die. Well, there are a lot of idiots in the world, and yet on the one hand, you do take things semi-seriously to say that the next time a package is delivered to my front door, I'm not necessarily just going to rush in and say, oh, what is it? <laughs> you know, so you think about it. But the world is filled with that type of thing, and of course, people who engage even in serial murders are basically put back out on the street. We saw an example of that just the last couple of days, a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of a man that was guilty of murder, and where every one of the jurors voted not just that he was guilty, but voted for the death sentence, as did the judge who sentenced him to death, but the Supreme Court of the United States overturned it, and barring some other little technicality, the man will be on the street in less than a year. That is the society in which we live. Is it like the days of Noah? Is it reminiscent of the days of Noah? What is that horrifying sin that I will not dignify with a name for which God obliterated two cities with a nuclear explosion and his wrath by fiery extermination as a microcosm of hell? What is that abominable sin that has come to the United States directly from Africa and that is becoming epidemic, if not endemic, among us? Does God see it? Does he know it? Is he aware of it? I'm certainly aware because every magazine I pick up tells me about AIDS. Every nightly telecast talks about AIDS. We live in a time where today in the United States of America, the seeds of race war are being spread. Where there are those who are saying AIDS, if you can believe this, is a deliberate conspiracy as well as drugs and the drug habits of tens of thousands of blacks, a deliberate conspiracy by the whites to exterminate the blacks. As of last night, I saw black leaders being interviewed pro and con as to the number who believe that the insatiable appetite of hundreds of thousands of blacks in the United States for crack is in fact a conspiratorial plot by people with my color to eradicate black people from among us. There are flacos and weirdos out here who are preaching that kind of venom. More than two and a half decades ago, when identifying Israel and talking about the Great Tribulation, I was talking about the specific problems confronting Australia and the yellow tide to their north. The concept that they had of importing white Europeans to, to uh, Australia and the various governmentally sanctioned inducements to bring about 
a larger immigration of white Europeans and Americans and others to Australia, and the official government slogan at that time, I don't know if it's ever changed, has been called Populate or Perish. And I talked about what the Japanese tried to do in World War II and what they no doubt will succeed in doing, perhaps in concert with other Orientals, in eventually putting together their greater Coke prosperity sphere and swarming down over Australia, New Zealand, and the white people there who have established a part of those lands given from the north to the south and the east and the west that were promised a part of what God chose was the inheritance of Israel. And I've shown that that part of Jacob's trouble of the tribulation, which is to come upon different members of the white race, from the British people who have colonized the world in South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, is not necessarily the same kind of a punishment from the same source as would apply to the United States of America. Have we got 10 or 12 or 15 years to deal with crack and with drugs in the United States? Have we got 10 or 12 or 15 years to stop the spread of AIDS? Why, the statistics show that if these things continue to grow at the rate that they're presently accelerating, society would literally come apart of the seams long before that time. From things already in place, not from a reunited Germany at the head of the United States of Europe with a huge standing army and perhaps a gigantic nuclear force and the weapons and the delivery vehicles with which to deliver them half a world away in 45 minutes, but all these other internal things. We live in a day just like that time. Now, Noah preached for 120 long years. I once gave a sermon. I want to briefly characterize it just by reminding you of it. It was many, many years ago. I entitled it, In the Shadow of the Ark. And I put it to you this way, to the people who listened then. It was a lot like the work we had been called to do. There at that time in Pasadena was an $11 million per year payroll. There were people on security, buildings and grounds, plumbing and electrical and carpentry and pre-press and photography and the printing press with two great big huge rotary presses, a P-50 Goss and a Halley Aller, and a whole bank of P-38s or whatever they were called, uh, sheet fed I believe they were, and a whole great big long line of before the days of computerized typesetting linotype machines. How will I remember? Hundreds of people hundreds upon hundreds of employees laboring in what was called the work. Yet there were politics, hurt feelings, petulance, anger. People dropped out and fell by the wayside. People would hate one another, get mad at one another. There were party spirits working to do this or that and get back at someone to get vengeance or to be vindicated. We had to at one time call a man from the field who is the husband of my sister-in-law, to be the minister for the press. Because there were so many problems among the press. People who lived in areas, maybe in Long Beach to Santa Barbara, but who came there on the campus to work, but weren't sitting there every Friday night at Bible study or Sabbath services to hear those in Pasadena doing the preaching. But it was almost, finally, like a separate church. And someone once opined, it might have been Mr. Albert Fortune, look, we send a man that is skilled in counseling and visiting and baptizing and who can anoint and pray for people when their children are sick to a church with far less members than we have employed over there in the press. Why, we're so big in the press, we need a minister to take care of those people, a minister to them. And sure enough, he was right, and we did. And that's how big we were. I likened that big monolithic structure 
with its hundreds of employees and $11 million payroll, with a utilities bill of $960,000 a year. We're talking about a big organization here. To the ark. And I said, here was Nutty Noah, out in the middle of a cornfield, laying a keel with a handful of employees. And here came the oxen with their gigantic trees, dragging them along the ground. And they worked with adzes and various draw knives and hand-wielded material, even though they did know the principle of leverage and they could utilize pulleys and they had processes that are perhaps lost to man today. But there were an awful lot of people who began to labor on the ark. Somehow Noah provided. Noah did not build some fragile-looking wicker basket the way they show in the movies. If you read the book by Whitcomb Morris called The Noatian Flood or The Flood of Noah, you read of the actual biblical descriptions of the size and the shape of the ark, of the cubic capacity of the ark. And I forget how many dozens of huge big railway cars the capacity literally was. And it has actually been studied scientifically to prove that if you average, and the average size of all animals on the earth is the size of a sheep, in spite of the fact that some few of them are like horses and elephants and hippopotami, the rest of them are very much smaller. The average size was a sheet, and Whitcomb and Morris's book on the Genesis Flood goes through all of that. And it shows how easily all of those Genesis kinds, not all the subspecies by their thousands, but the Genesis kinds, like the horse kind, the dog kind, and so on, could easily have been carried aboard the ark. And it was a fascinating study to look at that. So here was a project that was 120 years in completion. Many great ships are finished in a matter of months or a year and a half or so, even super tankers of 100 tons dead weight, or perhaps more than that. I should say a million tons, shouldn't I? Because uh, many of the uh, big ships of the day of World War II were up into the many thousands of tons, 27,000 tons for an aircraft carrier and approximately 50 to 65,000 tons for a battleship. And that some of the big super tankers that the Japanese build today with only a crew of 15 and computerized equipment to run them, can be up to one million tons dead weight. A huge ship. You know that it was not until the building of a ship like the Ile de France and some of the largest steam-driven liners in the latter part of the 1800s that a ship ever sailed the seas as large as the Ark did you know that? It's true. Read the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. Here was Noah, Nutty Noah, they may have called him. And he began working. And eventually there may well have been hundreds, if not a few thousand, who were laboring out there and actually constructed villages here and there around. People who were laboring on growing crops. People who had cattle. People who could look to the needs of those who were laboring on the ark. Year after year, 10, 20, 30, 40, 90, 130 nearly, no 120 altogether, they labored in the shadow of the ark as it gradually built and loomed up above the horizon, a larger and larger structure, until finally the finishing touches were being put on, and then here came the people who had been sent out into the hinterlands to gather all kinds of creatures and to keep them in containment pens, where you could hear all of these strange animal sounds all around in that area where who knows how many hundreds of people lived. And every day and every night, that was a part of their lives. It's amazing how people can take things for granted 
how your environment can become just absolutely so comfortable. You go by some of the people in the reservations out in New Mexico, and I would see some of those people out there living in a mud hovel. And above the mud hovel is a TV antenna. And out in front, a couple of abandoned old refrigerators, one overturned abandoned washing machine with a hand wringer, a couple of old derelict automobiles, some overturned barrels and tubs, and just junk. But that junk looks good to the people who live there because they once used it and they wore it out. And they just shoved it out the back door, took it out in the yard and left it, and the kids began playing in it. And maybe for a while they grew carrots in the old bathtub. So it just becomes a familiar part of your environment. They don't look at it like a tourist going by and say, oh, look at that junky yard. Think about that next time you criticize somebody's junk. To you, it's junk. To them, it's, man, that's my front yard. They're used to it. They like it there. So these people grew up in the shadow of the ark. The ark didn't mean anything to them. It wasn't a silent, day-by-day, -day chilling warning. It was just good old ark. That's where their sustenance came from. That's where they got their money. They worked on that ark. Hey, how you doing down there in the first deck? Oh, you third-deckers, we'll get you tonight in checkers. You know, they probably had contests going. They were just people living there, working in the shadow of the ark. I wish we could suddenly have me disappear and have in my place a living tabloid in beautiful technicolor of about a couple of dozen interesting conversations as people, elderly and infirm, thin and fat, old and young, male and female, yes, elderly and little children. I'd like to hear their comments. I'd like to hear what they're saying as they are standing waist deep after the second week of nothing but roaring rain. You suppose Noah was right? I mean, how many of them were clawing up the side of the thing on flotsam and jetsam, rolling along on some log? Noah, let me in! It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Was Noah a success? He preached his heart out for 120 years. He not only preached orally, he probably stood up there about halfway up on some parapet and said, in another 60 years, <laughs> 60 years, you idiot, 60 years, who's going to care? <laughs> you know, come on. I'm already 65, he's talking, it's going to happen in 60 years, like the two professors up there at the observatory. One of them said, <gasps> Smedley, come quick. He says, what's the matter? He said, I've just discovered a meteoroid is on its way and it's going to collide with Earth in a billion years. He said, what did you say? He said, I said, it's going to collide with Earth in a billion years. He said, oh, what a relief. I thought you said one million years. That's the way some people look at time. Try to tell a teenager like me when I was a teenager how you ought to study to prepare for college when you're only 16. Try to tell a youngster about preparing for a career or about saving or real estate or whatever when they're in their teens and their entire life yet lies ahead of them. It's so distant, it's so far, forget about it. So these people took it for granted. I can look back now and I find myself every now and then talking to my wife and saying, yeah, I remember 27 years ago this and that happened. And I kind of catch myself saying, you realize what you're saying? You're talking about more than what some people think is a lifetime. 25-year-olds think that's a whole lifetime, don't they? 
And there's a, I remember that real vividly. About 27 years ago, we were over there doing this and that. Well, the day came when all those conversations did take place. It says in verse 11, The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way. That's God's way, or its way, the way you want to take it. Their way of life, their way of living, and certainly God's way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, that is, they are the ones through whom the violence is wrought. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Then he gave all the instructions about the ark and said that every living thing should go two by two except clean animals, which were to be by sevens. And in verse 21, you shall take of thee all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to thee, and it shall be food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Then you see the example of the flood. Prior to that time, Noah had not experienced the conversion of a single convert. God spared Noah's family because of Noah's righteousness, the Bible says plainly, which is why in the book of Ezekiel, God says now it's going to be different. From now on, it's one man and one catalog of sins. One man will not save his family. One man's righteousness in a village won't save the village. Now, though Daniel, Job, and Noah were in it, every soul shall die for his own iniquity. Just as he had earlier said in the day of the murder of Abel, he that sheddeth man's blood shall find that by man shall his blood be shed. Would that that were so in our Supreme Court in the United States. It is not so, but it is God's will, his righteous will. It says that God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, chapter 8 and verse 1, and they came down from the ark. I want to show you now a little bit earlier than that in the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis. The generations of Adam... And what we're dealing with in terms of Noah, the seventh from Adam. Now it says in the book of the generations of Adam, verse 2, that he created them male and female and blessed them and called their name Adam. So Adam meant Adam and Eve. Their name was Ish. And Eve's name was Isha, but Ish means Adam kind or mankind. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, interesting language, why is that there in such detail? After his image, even more detail, and called his name Seth. Oh, well now wait a minute, then Seth was not the firstborn. No, Cain was the firstborn. And then along came Abel. Well, when Cain was born, Eve only says, if you go back and read it, I have gotten a man-child from the Lord. It's a man. It's a boy, honey. That's all she said. I won't get into all of the implications of that because it has to do with racial origins of the human family, but it becomes very obvious for those who are wise and those who study and to understand that Seth, uniquely among at least three sons and who knows how many daughters, looked like Adam, looked like Adam and Eve, after his likeness and in his image, and he called his name Seth. Seth was not the firstborn, but the third at least. 
Therefore, since there were girls that are not named, and that was true throughout this entire genealogical table, Adam and Eve by this time could have produced seven or eight or nine or eleven children, could they not? By any logic. But certainly at least three sons, the third of which, not first, the third of which is called Seth. And the days of Adam after he'd begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters, and maybe dozens of them. They lived long, long, healthy, productive lives back then. All the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. Now, Enos is actually the fourth, if you're counting, dealing with the firstborn of Adam, and if you include Adam, he's the fifth, but actually we can only count him as the second. And Seth lived after he began Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. Now you look, Enos lived 90 years in verse 9 and begat Cainan. That's the fifth by one reckoning and third by another. Verse 12, Cainan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel, and that's fourth by one reckoning and sixth by another. And it says in verse 15, Mahalalel lived 60 and five years and begat Jared, fifth and seventh by the different reckonings. And Jared lived 162 years, verse 18, and begat Enoch, either the sixth or the eighth, but Jared is the seventh by our one method of reckoning of including Seth as the first. Then we have a problem because Jude specifically says that Noah was the seventh. Lamech, it goes on a little later on, it talks, I'm sorry, that Enoch was the seventh. Enoch was the seventh. It says that Enoch was born, verse 18, he lived 65, begat Methuselah, and walked with God, verse 22, after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons of sons and daughters. And then he mentions Lamech in verse 28. And notice this interesting language beginning in verse 28, where Lamech lived 80 and two years and begat a son and called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Eternal has cursed. Lamech knew in advance, prior to the statement God made to Noah, because he had his eyes open, and just like those who are spoken of in the Bible as those who sigh and cry for the abominations around them, Lamech had his eyes wide open. He saw all the corruption, all the pollution, all the destruction of animal, of air, liquid, and solid pollution, who knows? The terrible perversions all around him and knew that the ground was under a curse and that God was angry and his wrath was soon going to descend. And it says that Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years, begetting sons and daughters, and Noah was 500 when he begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And he may have had many other children before that time and undoubtedly did, and perhaps many more after that time. So what is this Enoch the seventh from Adam? The clue you get here is this same shall be called Noah and shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands. Now I want you to skip over real quickly to Hebrews the 11th chapter and verse 5. And notice something here that is quite interesting. Hebrews 11 and verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated and that means a change in condition or location. You translate a verb or a word, but you can also transport or translate, and it means transport, that's the, ex the other meaning of it, a human being. 
that he should not see death, and some people think he was caught up to heaven, but he was not, because it says a little later in the same chapter twice, including his name, quote, these all died, not having received the promises, including Enoch, that he should not see death, meaning at that time, meaning that he should not see untoward death, death too early, death of an obnoxious, painful kind, death perhaps by torture, and was not found. Interesting language. Why wasn't he found? Well, because people were looking for him. He was not found because people were looking for him, because God had translated him, taken him away. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Oh, that gives us a clue as to why people were looking for him. He pleased God. How many other people during his generation pleased God? No one. No one. Zero. There is absolute, powerful, strong inference in these series of scriptures that show that Almighty God throughout that period of time was in fact dealing with one human being and then his successor to whom the mantle fell and the commission fell, and the knowledge and the preservation of the word, the law, and the way of God fell. The anointing fell. And that through those generations there was one man in that generation that was righteous before God, that was a preacher of his word, that was giving an, a, a powerful witness before all of his other peers and all the people around in his generation. Did one of them build a church? Can you point to a single convert on the part of one of them? Seth, Mahalaleel, Cainan, Enoch, even Noah? You cannot. There was no church. Why, the ark landed, if you will look at it, on the third day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It says very clearly, the 17th day of the seventh month. There was no knowledge of the Feast of God, though that may be significant. I don't know. No, they didn't convert people. They didn't build up great institutions. Noah built a great structure. And that structure was for the purpose of the preservation of the human race, and at the same time, what most people have never understood, a witness to all of those around it, and to those especially who worked upon it, and whose livelihood depended upon that great building called an ark that one day would be borne up by the water, but which for 120 years gradually took shape in the proverbial min in the middle of the cornfield, although corn was never known and invented until it was found among the Western Indians, and I know that, but, or the analogous reference, at least, in the middle of a field somewhere. What kind of a success record do you suppose the prophets of God are to leave behind? I want to turn to the book of Ezekiel right quickly. And look at just a few references here before concluding. Ezekiel is told in the second chapter, Son of man, stand upon your feet, and I will speak with thee. And the Spirit entered in me, and he set me upon my feet, and I heard him that spake, and he said, verse 3, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that have rebelled against me, and their fathers have trespassed against me even to this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted, I do send you to them, and you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, 
Thus says the Lord Eternal. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, parenthesis, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know there has been a prophet among them. They're going to know that. What do you suppose all those people knew when they saw those ashen gray faces and maybe a black face or two and a yellow face or two peering at them from that slick parapet the sides of that gigantic vessel as they were screaming, crying out, cursing, clawing at its side, trying to get up there to save themselves. What do you suppose was going through the minds of all of those people about Noah and his ministry. I'm here to tell you that there may well have been hundreds of thousands, if not a million or two, who at the time of the flood knew. How do I measure success? I'll tell you, I do not measure success by big institutions, by large buildings, by large bank accounts, by numbers of people sitting in church. I number success in the following way, remaining faithful to God's word, preaching that word fearlessly without favor over television and if and when God gives me radio again and the ability to do so, or via the pen and the printing press and out of the pulpit and personal evangelistic campaigns all over this country. With all of the power and the strength that God gives me through the power of his spirit and through his protection and guidance over my life and my health, and that of all of us collectively, and that of all of the ministers of Christ in their pulpits, and all of the people, and their responsibility for personal examples and local evangelism. And then the ultimate measurement of our success, I believe, is given to us in a little bit of a revelation, in the book of Revelation, in the sixth and seventh chapters. And I'll turn to that now. After these things I saw four angels, chapter 7, verse 1, when it shows the great heavenly signs, and they're saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17 of chapter 6, The day of his wrath is coming, who shall be able to stand? They are seeing, they are witnessing, living on into and through the time of the great tribulation. Now they see this gigantic, mind-boggling, heavenly display that just staggers the human imagination and drops them to their knees, and they cannot even comprehend that the sun should be looking like it is deep red blood, and that the moon cannot be seen, that it's as black as midnight at noonday. And it is just terrifying human beings. Many are dropping dead, it says, of heart attacks. Men bent over, grabbing their loins. It says, like a woman giving birth. Their minds are driving them crazy with what they see. In verse 3 it says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea. God holds back his wrath in the day of the Lord till we have sealed the servants of our God. But they are not yet sealed. Therefore they are not yet convicted. They've not yet dropped to their knees the way in the 50s when a terrible smog-laden day struck London. There were actual pictures on television of middle-aged women dropping to their knees and tearing their nylons on the streets and crying with tears down their eyes, thinking the day of the Lord had come. Because London had a fog mixed with soot and smog that blackened the city for days on end, and it so terrified some people they thought the day of the Lord was here. 
These people are going to be so stricken by what they see that they will then cry out to God, and guess what? Not a one of them will ever have observed the Passover. The 144,000 and this vast innumerable multitude that we see, 12,000 of every tribe, including 36,000 you and I, would call Jews. Let any church leader who claims to be the leader of the church of the 144,000 show me 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Simeon, and 12,000 from Levi. That's 36,000 Jews. They will look like Jews, they will have names like Jews, and they will be Jewish. This is not talking about churches. It's talking about unconverted people and nations all around the world. And it says eventually, who are these that are arrayed in white robes? And he said, these are they, verse 14, that came out of, they came through it, out of it, not from it, but out of it, the great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But he had seen also this great, verse 9, multitude which no man could number of all nations, not just Jews or Israelites, kindreds, people, and tongues, that stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and they're crying out, singing, Salvation to our God. Now the bottom line is simply that, salvation. It is not escape. It is not protection for your physical body. The bottom line is salvation. If I am in the hands of Almighty God and my life is secure in His hands, if I am converted and baptized and have received God's Spirit, and blessed is that servant who, when his Lord shall come, he shall find so doing. I looked and behold, I marveled that there was no intercessor. There had better be an intercessory work. The big question, bottom line, are you saved?